Hi, I'm Emma Quigley, Senior Vice President of Institutional Business Development at Angel Oak Capital Advisors. Today, I'd like to share where the Angel Oak team is seeing opportunities in financials credit, an area where Angel Oak has a long history of investing. We have an experienced and dedicated team that focuses on investing in community and regional bank subordinated debt, with over $3 billion invested across our public and private strategies. We view the asset class as an ideal diversifier to traditional corporate credit. Today, we're joined by Cheryl Pate. She's a senior portfolio manager on Angel Oaks Financial's credit strategies. Cheryl, thanks for joining us. Looking forward to chatting with you on your background, how you came to Angel Oak, and the types of opportunities you're seeing within Financial's credit today. So Cheryl, I'd love to hear a bit more about you. You were born in Canada. You worked at Morgan Stanley as an analyst prior to coming to Angel Oak. Tell us a bit about how you got started in investing in Financial's credit. Yeah, that's right. I am a Canadian by background. Uh, I did my undergrad at UBC in Vancouver, and I uh, focused on finance in my undergrad. I moved to the U.S. more than 20 years ago to do my MBA at Duke, and again, with an overall focus on finance. Post-business school graduation, I went up to New York. I spent about a decade up there. I was an equity analyst at Morgan Stanley for 10 years. So I began my career at Morgan Stanley in the bank space, focusing on large money center banks, trust banks, and eventually taking lead coverage on the Canadian banks, as well as some of the small cap banks. As my career evolved at Morgan Stanley, I took a lead equity analyst role for consumer and specialty finance, and I ran that franchise covering over 20 stocks across a multitude of sectors, including credit card, auto finance, mortgage finance, mortgage REITs, and some fintech names as well. I came to Angel Oak about six years ago now. I'm a senior portfolio manager on the financial strategy. And I think really the factor that that made me so excited to join Angel Oak was sort of marrying that background on the research side, on the equity side, and taking that to an entrepreneurial environment where we're able to source assets in the financial space across the liquidity spectrum, across the capital stack, in a multitude of different products to serve our investors. Thanks so much for that, Cheryl. So you've had a pretty broad range of coverage across the financial sector throughout your career. How do you fit within the team at Angel Oak that's focused on financials? And how do you all work together? What's your competitive edge? Yeah, the financials team at Angel Oak, we we manage about a billion and a half on balance sheet today and have invested nearly three billion over the course of the last almost decade. There's three portfolio managers that focus on the financial strategy. Myself, coming from an equity research sort of analyst type background, Johannes Paulson, he was a CFO of a community bank before joining Angel Oak. So he really brings that sort of inside management perspective to our analysis. And Kevin Parks, who joined us from Hildeen several years ago, and he really has a lot of aptitude in the TRUPS CDOs and single-name TRUPS, as well as having run an equity long short prior to joining us. So I think we really have a complementary skill set. We source a lot of our assets from the primary market and do a fairly thorough due diligence as we go through each investment opportunity. Given the team's diverse background, How do you leverage those different areas of expertise and what is your investment universe that you're focusing on? 
Yeah, absolutely. We look across financials credit broadly. I would say that has been our historical area of focus, particularly in community and regional banks. But really, as we've broadened the team and our experience over the last several years, we have looked across financials credit broadly, including some of the non-bank financials. We've looked up and down the capital stack, including preferred and common equity as well. But really, our bread and butter is community and regional bank debt. And that's a market that really came to fruition back in in mid-2014, and we were very early to the space. We're probably one of the most active investors across the liquidity spectrum there, ranging anywhere from small, bespoke, five to 10 million type dollar deals up to the 150 million, the 300 million deals. And so really, we kind of would say our core investable universe in the community bank debt space focuses on institutions larger than 500 million up to about 50 billion in asset size. So you mentioned investing in the debt of these regional and community banks. Let's go into that instrument. Is this TRUPS 2.0? Where we really focus our efforts is in subordinated debt. And I think it has a lot of attractive features and importantly, some key differentiators from the legacy trust preferred market. So subordinated debt is a capital instrument. It is typically a 10-year, no-call five, fixed to floating structure. And again, it's really a capital instrument rather than a funding tool. So it qualifies for tier two regulatory capital for the banks. As such, they tend to be a little bit less sensitive on pricing, given it's not a funding tool, but rather it bolsters their capital levels for the regulators. Key difference between subdebt and TRUPS, um, number one, TRUPS were deferrable instruments. Subdebt is a creature of the post-financial crisis era and has really sort of tightened up a lot of the features that caused potentially some issues with the trust preferred market back in the day. So not deferrable. And the other key difference is this is tier two capital rather than tier one capital, which is typically your common and preferred equities. So there's been some shifts in how the regulators look at these type of capital instruments. But what we really like on these ones is they're a very standardized form now. And the market has really evolved and it's grown so that it's actually larger than the old TRUPS market. It's approaching $50 billion in issuances if we look all the way back to the infancy of the market, and roughly an 8 to $10 billion on average annual issuance, and that would include some refinancing. So a growing and evolving marketplace. Great. Thanks for that, Cheryl. So what are our thoughts on the space from a fundamental perspective? Our philosophy has always been to invest in banks that we term boring banks. We look for banks that have traditional business models, strong deposit platforms, strong client relationships, as well as strength in liquidity and funding. The banking sector shifted pretty significantly post-global financial crisis, not just to higher regulation, but also to holding higher levels of capital, to tightening their underwriting standards, and even exiting some types of lending altogether. We have been concerned for some time about the impact of rapidly raising rates on banks' investment portfolios, which really grew pretty significantly coming out of the pandemic. And loan growth was anemic during this period. Liquidity was high, and a lot of this excess liquidity was deployed into long-duration agency MBS in banks' investment portfolios. We've seen unrealized losses mount over the last year in the investment portfolio, negatively impacting accumulated other comprehensive income, AOCI, as well as capital. 
And the recent market volatility, we think, really highlights the risk to high concentrations, both on the lending and deposit side. And that's something that we're always mindful of in our investment process, both from sort of single name issuers as well as state and regional concentrations. Interesting. So given recent events with bank failures, where do you think we stand today? We really separate some of the recent events, I think, into two pieces. Number one, there was the failure of Silicon Valley and Signature Bank and the related contagion into some other names in the sector. And then secondly, the banking system overall. And to be clear, we want to be very mindful that we don't think there is a systemic issue here. We had the Treasury, the Fed, the FDIC come out with a very proactive approach, fully covering all the deposits of the failed banks. And even though they can't explicitly guarantee all deposits without congressional approval, we do think these actions were intended to suggest an implicit guarantee. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly for the banking system as a whole, Regulators also announced measures to stabilize the overall banking system with the creation of the new bank term funding program, the BTFP. And what that really does is widen the eligible assets and provides the ability to pledge assets at par to the discount window. So solving for that unrealized loss AOCI issue I highlighted earlier, which really is more of the issue that we're concerned on from a high level perspective for the industry. So the resulting regulatory response to these events likely will be similar to what we saw in the wake of the financial crisis. We think there's stricter regulation to come, higher capital requirements, larger liquidity buffers, and enhanced liquidity management. Likely also increased consolidation to reduce concentration risk and a revamped deposit insurance program, along with higher cost of funding and capital for most banks. We do also expect that bank management teams will shift even more into defensive mode, namely increasing liquidity. That could include actions such as raising deposit rates, increasing wholesale funding, FHLB advances, utilizing the discount window as well as the new BTFP, but also lowering risk by further tightening lending standards and increasing spreads, and also boosting balance sheet quality, for example, boosting loan loss reserves and stockpiling capital stopping buybacks and the like. So there's a lot of response that we expect in the coming months as a result of some of the volatility we're seeing today. Thanks for all that context, Cheryl. Are there opportunities in financials in today's markets? For investors, we think opportunities like today are actually pretty rare. Our investment team's long-term dedication to the space we feel can help identify opportunities across select banks and other financial services companies. But where we sit today, spreads are wide on the debt side, volatility is high in preferred stocks, and equity valuations are severely depressed. An upcoming consolidation cycle could also provide additional alpha generation opportunities. Looking ahead, we do remain convinced in the safety and soundness of the banking system and believe the sector will emerge stronger. In light of all of that, I would imagine that this space is probably pretty ripe for consolidation. What are your views on M&A activity within the space? Consolidation is really, I think, one of the key alpha generators of our strategies. And it has been a trend for a number of years. If you go all the way back to the 1980s, there were 14,000 banks in the United States. We're still sitting around 5,000 today. So ample room for further consolidation. And I think particularly in this environment where we're sitting with sort of high levels of expenses given the inflationary backdrop, 
as well as some competitive pressures for investing in things like technology, cybersecurity. There's a real rationale for M&A activity to actually accelerate, particularly as we get to the end of the uh, Fed rate hike cycle. So when we look at bank M&A, there is a value-enhancing proposition for both banks. Typically, you're able to take out a lot of fixed costs and run a more efficient bank. There are economies of scale to consider here. From our perspective as debt investors, the real benefit is it's typically a larger bank buying a smaller bank, and what we see in the bonds is price appreciation as spreads tighten. So we've been able to monetize that for a number of years in our strategies, and I would say our portfolios typically run about double the consolidation rate of the sector at large, which would call about 5% on average. So we're sort of running 10% plus. Because of the nature of the type of banks that issue this subordinated debt, they tend to be more capital-optimizing, growth-oriented institutions, and that really lines up well with someone who may be an attractive M&A target. So your team covers a lot of ground within this particular universe. You mentioned investing over $3 billion in equity capital across the Angel Oak platform. Let's walk through your investment process. It has to be pretty robust, leveraging your research background and Johannes Paulson's background as a community bank CFO. How do you all assess a bank? How do you monitor it? And where do you source these types of investments? Absolutely. So the bulk of what we look at from an investment opportunity perspective tends to be primary market focused. I would say sort of 80% of our opportunities have been sourced in the primary markets. I think one of the benefits of our long history in the space going on almost 10 years now is we have a multitude of different relationships, over 70 different broker dealers that we speak to in terms of sourcing investment opportunities. I'll talk to the secondary market later, but that's sort of the bulk of where we spend our time. Because this is a little bit of a niche market, deals tend to afford us the opportunity to do a pretty deep due diligence process, meaning that we get time to speak with management teams. If it's a smaller, more bespoke type transaction, we request full data rooms that include things like concentration reports on the loan book, delinquencies, everything that we would want to spend some more time delving into. Outside of that, the banking sector is also a highly regulated sector. And as such, there are regular reports that are required to be filed on a quarterly basis. So it's very transparent and it's very uniform in terms of pulling the data out. One of our first steps is we have developed a quantitative model that looks at default probabilities, and it it rates every bank in the United States on several different metrics that we have found to be the most predictive of default. So we would look at things like capital adequacy, asset quality, liquidity, portfolio concentrations, and profitability. That's just a first screen for us, and, and everything does need to screen investment grade per our parameters to warrant doing more due diligence. From there, we do a full credit underwriting, and we look at things like ownership structures from a capital perspective, holding company structures, from asset quality. And I would say this is probably where we spend most of our time and is always our largest concern is the loan portfolio details, delinquencies, charge-off levels, reserve adequacy, concentrations, things like that. And the list goes on from there. We look at earnings, profitability, revenue mix, funding, and interest rate sensitivity. And because these deals are not ones that typically will price the same day they come out, we do have time to do 
a really deep dive. In terms of our investment process, once we decide something fits our criteria, we're comfortable with the underwriting, we have an investment committee as well that every investment opportunity goes through and is vetted by a broader investment committee. So you mentioned as part of your investment process, a proprietary quantitative model. I believe that's called bank surf. Could you talk about that a bit more? Yeah, so that, that's the quant model I was highlighting earlier. It's one we developed in-house. It mimics a lot of the quantitative engines that you would see at the rating agencies, such as Kroll, which tends to be fairly prevalent in our space, and, and Moody's has one as well. So what we really did was sort of looked back over time and a lot of different variables for the entire sector to be able to pull out what really drove a higher probability of default or failure. And that has been probability weighted in our model. In terms of relative weighting, capital adequacy is, is the largest weight in the model. And it sort of works down rateably, asset quality being second, and profitability metrics being on the other end of that in terms of a little bit more variability there. But what that does is provide our first screen and sort of our first hurdle in terms of is this an opportunity that we want to continue to pursue. Great. Well, thanks so much, Cheryl. That was a lot of detail about the process that we have in place for investing in community banks and evaluating those banks on an ongoing basis. One last question for you. Since you're a Canadian, are you a hockey fan? I am a hockey fan. I've had to get used to baseball as I've moved to the South, but originally hockey is where I spend my time. <laughs> So what are our thoughts on Ryan Reynolds' bid to buy the Ottawa Senators? Well, so Ryan Reynolds is a fellow Vancouverite, so I would have thought the Canucks, but he's been making some forays. I think he bought us like a football club in uh, Wales as well, so doubling down on sports. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Cheryl. Appreciate you joining us today and hearing what you're seeing out in the market and hope to chat again soon. Thank you again. 